welcome to CAD Speaker Series podcast. Hi, everybody. We are here with Jesse Cronin, who is the Executive Director for Gardens for Health International, based in Rwanda. We just had our first session of the speaker series for the Center for International Development, and we were very excited to kick it off with Jesse. So now, Jesse, thank you so much for coming again. Uh, we are just going to ask you some questions about your experience, but also more importantly about how the organization is helping to address malnutrition in Rwanda, amongst others. So just to start, Jesse, can you tell us from your experience working in NGOs and working with local governments and with private businesses, what would you say governments could learn from the private institutions when it comes to executing this type of work that you do? So you're working, you're trying to partner with, with governments, but what can they learn in order to work with communities? That's a great question, and I'm not sure I kind of have a really good answer kind of for governments broadly. I know that in Rwanda, where we work, I think one of the, the privileges that we have as a small and privately funded NGO is that we're able to do a lot of experimentation to take a lot of risks and to invest really deeply in program design and development. And so I think one of the, the places where we feel a real responsibility is to design nu uh, nutrition interventions that are going to be as effective as possible and then to share those with the government. And I think the best kind of best way to have uh, government adoption is to really have a strong proof of concept um, and to be, you know, we're privileged to be working with a government that shares our same goal of reducing chronic malnutrition. We're not, we're not fighting an uphill battle and getting them um, to see the need for our kind of work. I think it's more a question of can we really demonstrate the effectiveness and then demonstrate the cost effectiveness to the government, which is a big challenge when it comes to a problem like malnutrition because the people who are bearing the burden of the cost aren't necessarily kind of the people who are, are facing malnutrition right now. And so you're looking at, you know, massive loss in GDP and potential future earnings that's going to impact the government down the road, but the people who are bearing the cost right now are the vulnerable families. And so that kind of disparate relationship makes it hard to make a case for the government to invest now in something where they're going to see savings so far down the line. Okay, great. Yeah, I, I, can, I can see that. And, and just along the same lines with that, you mentioned during the, the seminar that one of the reasons you've been so successful in working with the government in Rwanda is because they, in the Minister of, Ministry of Health, one of their goals is to address malnutrition. Now, do you feel that you have that same will for working with uh, Gardens for Health from the community, from the local community, or even the local governments, because, you know, one thing is to have things dictated from, from the central government, and then another is to have it at the local level. Absolutely. And I, I think, so I think we wouldn't be very successful if we were being, if we were a top-down kind of mandated program. I think the strength of our work really lies in the fact that the biggest buy-in we see is at the community level. We work through health centers to provide a combination of resources, so seeds, seedlings, the small livestock, soap, and then training and, and peer support to caregivers of children with malnutrition. We ask a lot of families who enroll in our program. We ask them to commit to coming twice a week 
once a week to health trainings at their local health center and once a week to practical agriculture trainings, which take place at, at lead farmers' homes in the community. And so that's a really big time investment that we're asking families to make. And what we see is that we have a 99% graduation rate and a 91% attendance rate. So we have huge buy-in once families enroll in our program, but we also have huge demand. When we go out and do growth monitoring campaigns with community health workers, we identify children in across the district who are showing signs and symptoms of malnutrition. And we ask that their mothers take them or their caregivers take them to the health center on a given day um, when we're doing program enrollment. We're very clear that we enroll 40 families per season, and we see between 250 and 300 families show up and spend the day at enrollment in hopes that they'll be able to be part of the program. And so I think that that, for us, that buy-in on the ground from the families is what drives our success. And we actually just looked at results of a survey looking at about 650 graduates of our program between 2012 and 2015, and 63% of them reported that they had shared information from our trainings with a neighbor or with someone else in their community and had encouraged them to enroll. Thank you. Actually, that was kind of a follow-up question. But you mentioned during the uh, seminar that one of the things that has made the work of the organization successful is also to have very strong community leaders. So what kind of traits, I guess, would say, would you look for in, in the community leaders? And you also spoke about some of the challenges that you had, that you, that you had made some assumptions about that. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So our program is delivered at each of our health centers by a pair of field educators who come from that catchment area. When we you know, did our initial scale up, we went to recruit for these field educators. We initially thought we would be looking for women because most of the program, most of our participants are women and, and we really thought this is a program for mothers. We want it delivered by mothers. And we also created a, a kind of a very rigorous selection process. We were looking to add in the first case eight and then in the, the next year, 20 new field educators at a time And in each health center, we wanted to make sure that we were getting people who were really kind of the shining stars in their community, who had the trust of their neighbors, the trust of village leaders, and whose kids were really already successful, not only so that they would have a lot of buy-in, but also because those are people we can really learn from. We really want to understand the kind of positive deviance aspects of the the community-based work. When we went to do this initial expansion, we had a number of men apply. And actually, our country director at the time and I were both in the United States, and we started getting all of these calls from our program leadership saying, listen, I know you said women, but but there's this guy named Innocent, and he's such a good trainer, and there's this guy named Shadrach, and man, you should see how good he is with mamas. And, and we said, okay, let, let's really think about this. And so we now have a, have a program where our field educators, we don't have a gender requirement. We don't have any pairs that are just men because there's some topics like family planning and gender-based violence where we do want a woman to be able to speak. But a lot of our field educators are really talented, empathetic, compassionate men. And we found that when men go out and lead community cooking demonstrations, the whole community shows up to watch. <laughs> there's there's yeah. a big value there. And in terms of the recruitment and selection process, We work first with the health centers, and so we go to the health center leadership, and then we go to the leadership of each village, they call them umadugadus, within that sector. And we say, who are the candidates that you would propose? And from there, we then administer an exam. And that then winnows it down to the top four candidates for every position. They spend a week on our farm with our team doing a combination of practical on-the-ground teach-back activities, farming activities, a lot around kind of 
understanding how they engage with families and then that um, coupled with more exams so that it's a really rigorous selection process. And when we did our, our kind of second round of expansion, we had over a thousand applicants for 40 jobs. Wow. So we, yeah, so we were able to get really, when we say really talented community leaders, we mean really talented community leaders. Yeah, no, that, that sounds like a very exhaustive process and mm-hmm. very rigorous. So that's, that's great. I know that you spoke about expanding to other regions and other countries uh, beyond Rwanda. So what would be the main lessons learned that you would bring to these new projects or partnerships that you think about? Regional expansion is always on our mind. Rwanda is a great place to work for a lot of reasons. It's also right next door to a lot of countries that have a lot higher burden of malnutrition. We think especially about Burundi, which is so similar agronomically and demographically to Rwanda and is in such dire, dire straits. The combination of conflict and drought is just devastating. You know, regional expansion is something we really want to do someday. I think as a first step, we really believe that in order to be effective, you need that deep community knowledge and trust that took us several years to build. I think there are are some shortcuts we're thinking about to kind of develop that in new spaces. And one would be to find really closely aligned partner organizations that already have that community knowledge and trust where we could start to operate our program through those organizations, get an understanding of the landscape, build that local knowledge, and then and then potentially, you know, have boots on the ground programs ourselves. But I think we don't see ourselves as the organization that solves malnutrition. That would be terribly egotistical of us. But I think we do see ourselves as an organization that's uniquely positioned to provide technical expertise and advice to other people as they design their interventions. I think we really want to do the best possible job we can, not just so that families in our program succeed, but so that other people will do what we're doing. Great. Thank you. And so just a, a follow-up question to that is, what would your advice be for people who would like to maybe replicate something like Gardens for Health, say, in some place in Central America? My advice then would be uh, get back to us in a couple of years. I think uh, we certainly, you know, we talk with a lot of organizations that are interested in in doing similar work. I think for us right now, we want to focus on areas where we do already have a lot of knowledge. So East Africa um, and specifically Rwanda, Uganda and Burundi are places that we would probably feel much more comfortable providing advice. But we would be happy to talk to anybody about our work. Great. So, final questions. You were an HKS student, and you graduated five years ago. Can you provide some words of wisdom or advice for students who are currently in the, in the HKS programs? What would you say they should be focusing on during here, their, their time here? Gosh, I'm not sure I'm the best person to answer this because I think I had... Completely unintentionally, I ended up in this job as, as executive director of, of what really at the time was a very small startup. You know, we had about 18 people and at every given moment, you know, two weeks cash on hand. I ended up in an organization, in a space where I was using everything I learned in, in my MVP or almost everything. You know, we had an M&E team and so suddenly statistics were very, very relevant. We did not have a finance team, so accounting was incredibly important. I found myself using a lot of the things from kind of management classes um, and, and coming back to look at that. So it wasn't necessarily the stuff that I 
thought at the time was going to be especially relevant that has proven to be so useful for me. It was actually, for me, some of the classes, I'm not a very quantitative person, and, and my job does require me to be pretty familiar with numbers, uh, both finance and, and impact-wise, and, and that skill set from the Kennedy School has served me very well. Great. Thank you so much. So for those of you out there in the HKS programs, make sure you take your steps. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Jesse. It was uh, great having you here and hope to have you back again. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.